Well, thank you all for coming tonight. Um, it's good to see you all or to see your avatars. Um, very grateful for Bishop Perry uh, being here with us tonight. Bishop Perry, I'll just give a, a brief introduction if you don't already know him. Um, he's appointed auxiliary bishop here in the Archdiocese of Chicago in 1998 and currently serves as the Episcopal Vicar for Vicariate uh, 6, of which I was a member not long ago. My first assignment was in Vicariate 6 down in Blue Island. His Episcopal consecration took place on June 29, 1998, the Feast of Saints Peter and Paul, Chicago's Holy Name Cathedral. Bishop Perry, who was originally a priest of the Archdiocese of Milwaukee, was ordained on May 24, 1975. After an 18-month assignment as Associate Pastor of St. Nicholas Parish in Milwaukee, he was assigned to the Tribunal Offices of the Archdiocese in December 1976 and was sent for graduate studies in Canon Law at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. His priestly ministry has been spent with ecclesiastical law and education, working primarily in the church courts as advocate, judge in the Court of Appeals, servicing the suffragan diocese of Superior, La Crosse, Green Bay, and Madison, and finally as conciliation and arbitration clerk. In 1983, he was appointed judicial vicar for the Archdiocese of Milwaukee, a position he held for two six-year terms. Additionally, Bishop Perry served as the chaplain of the St. Thomas More Lawyer Society of Wisconsin, an association of lawyers and judges. He was an adjunct professor of canon law studies at both Marquette University Law School and Sacred Heart Seminary, and currently serves as the adjunct professor of canon law at St. Mary of the Lake Seminary in Mundelein. In January of 2010, Cardinal George appointed Bishop Perry postulator for the diocesan phase of the cause of sainthood for Father Augustus Tolton, the first priest of African descent in the United States, who labored in the Diocese of Alton, now Springfield, Springfield Illinois, and the Archdiocese of Chicago until his untimely death in 1897 at the age of 43. So without further ado, I um, present to you Bishop Perry, uh, who will give us uh, our presentation tonight. Thank you, Bishop. Well, good evening, everyone. And uh, blessings on the new school year and its special challenges at this time. Well, let me give, um, uh, for the topic of the evening, let me give some uh, background and some uh, reflections on what's been happening and uh, where it comes from and um, how specifically we as uh, Christians, Catholics can make some sort of a response to it in a, in a faith-filled way and to try to make a difference because we believe that the gospel certainly inspires us to do so and to somehow change the face of the earth and ready the earth for the Lord's uh, coming and try by principally improving the situations within which we live uh, here and around the world. I'm an old professor of history way, way back, so you might uh, sense a historical tinge. I like to uh, uh, compare and contrast as well as to relate current events with, with things that happened in the past and what's going on in the, in the present in hopes that the, the future could be better. Um, I think if you look at uh, history, you will uh, notice that the world has watched the American experiment in democracy and, and has observed correctly that America has had a problem with, with race for the longest. And in a society as prosperous and as educated and informed as we are and, and enlightened as we claim to be, uh, we cannot seem to get beyond catastrophes in our treatment of peoples, be they Native, Asian, Black, Latino, 
and representative immigrants of these groups. It's taken a good while to understand and, and attribute to others different from us uh, what we call inalienable human rights and equality. And then only since the late 1960s, within the construct of the law uh, framed in civil rights. Social uh, protests, violent or, or nonviolent, take place when people perceive that they are not listened to or valued or respected. And there have been loads of these social outcries in America's past and, and present, uh, many of them involving bloodshed and loss of life. Things simmer down for a while, only for eruptions to take place again and disturb citizens' peace of mind while pointing fingers at who seems to be responsible. Um, when you look at it, the nation has been slow to examine the systemic causes of, of racial unrest in our society. It's no secret that the uh, social stratification of American society is, is one cause for unrest. In other words, a wide range of disparities exists between rich and poor, uh, black and white, educated and uneducated, employed and unemployed, uh, people who have access to health care and people who don't. Unfortunately, the largest uh, response from society is often through law enforcement, uh, which is accused of harsh tactics that can prove deadly. What is frequently called structural racism, words, uh, rank and file Americans experience a visual and emotional dissonance uh, when a person of dark skin enters their space and some awful things can result. As we saw with the uh, woman in Central Park in New York several months back when she spotted a, a bird watcher, a black man with his camera approaching an eye view. And for some odd reason, she accosts the man with words and proceeds to call the police on him, accusing him of, of assault on her and her dog. Uh, the man reportedly had done nothing and said nothing to provoke such a response in her part. Or in the instance of Ahmad Arbery uh, jogging in a suburb of Atlanta and two men spying him decide to hunt him down and amidst a short hostile exchange, Arbery is shot to death. Now, these are just two examples. None of this stuff is recent. Uh, Legion are the narrative of African-Americans embroiled in these kinds of incidents over generations in our country. With all the stuff that, uh, that falls to me to read from day to day, from professional journals to magazines, newspapers, books, I remember distinctly back as far as the 1980s, uh, articles and op-ed columns and sociological treatises mentioning, suggesting, hinting at what is called, quote unquote, the browning of America and how this social evolution frightens the hell out of people who believe that a white environment is the best environment, uh, the most prosperous and safe and preferred environment. Um, we have been raised to think so at least. There's a Harvard, um, university sociologist by the name of Khalil Muhammad, 
who wrote a book back in 2010 titled The Condemnation of Blackness. Uh, it's a kind of a thick book. I read it during the early weeks of the uh, COVID lockdown. This book describes how America has succeeded in keeping uh, black people at arm's length by labeling specifically black males as dangerous criminals in order to justify their own fears about the black race. It is the color of our skin that has remained a stigma from benefiting from life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness spelled in American terms. Uh, put another way, we adults have taken our box of Crayola crayons and devalued the colors black and brown and taught our children to do the same. I receive a lot of questions voiced uh, sincerely from whites as to what can we do to somehow make a difference in all of this. Um, there are a variety of responses that I think that could be made, but I think, first of all, we have to recognize uh, that the church's record is not so nice as regards the problem. Our historical annals are filled with um, documentaries of having enslaved Africans work our kitchens and laundry rooms and gardens and farms and tending livestock for bishops, convents and seminaries, colleges and so forth. Then post-emancipation, after all this, free labor, the church refused African-Americans baptized Catholic to worship with us in our churches and kneel at the communion railing alongside whites, which they were forbidden to do. We used black applicants to our convents and seminaries and colleges. Uh, we proceeded parallel with popular sentiment that blacks were inferior and to be held subservient and were not to occupy the same space as whites that their natural condition was being servants, seldom if ever adequately paid on par with others or pensioned for respectful greetings and hellos and gestures of inclusion, uh, blacks were to be feared and kept at a distance away from the spaces that whites owned and occupied. Following our nation's civil war that was fought over the morality and the expediency of, of slavery for the American economy, and after emancipation of the slaves in the states of rebellion, there was no program to assimilate or adjust slaves within mainstream society vis-a-vis -vis a new attitude. So they were left to be treated haphazardly. Uh, the resultant experience was nothing short of a nightmare. Vigilante groups and white supremacists like the Ku Klux Klan and other ne'er-do-wells arose to keep blacks in their place at the threat of the hangman's noose and other retaliations and wanton displays of violence. Former slaves, emancipated slaves, people of color by and large remain strangers to rank-and-file citizens that we bump into every day, and particularly people who hold the most influence to work for societal change. Uh, most people of color were and are today easily dismissed as abstractions with nothing to offer the experience of peoples of the dominant society. Uh, given that our communities continue to be divided by race and economic opportunity, black and white in America 
do not know each other. And you have perceptions of each other that are, are largely skewed. Black accomplishments, despite it all, is often spelled as men running up and down a wooden floor, pushing a ball in a basket, or kicking a ball across a field while raking in millions upon millions for white franchise owners, but nothing more. In the meantime, we cannot imagine blacks living next door to us. How does our society overturn 400 years of thought process and political and institutional treatment this way of people is a question. There are a few suggestions I can make to help with overhauling our own thoughts and actions as regards this dogged problem of race in our society. By and large, you and I will not be in a position to change the education and formation tactics of law enforcement. Someone else has that influence. Most of us are not real estate moguls or find ourselves sitting at the engines that run the healthcare industry. None of us are employers, so we won't have the capacity to make sure that swathes of poor immigrants, Blacks and Latinos and others, are gainfully employed so they can feed their children, pay their rents and mortgages. But there are several action steps that we might consider to embolden our own Christian and Catholic role in making a difference. Uh, first off, uh, we can read one or two of the documents of the U.S. bishops as a conference that put out addressing the topic of race and racial reconciliation and Christian action. There are actually 10 documents of the American bishops in these areas stretching back to 1958. Uh, the most recent one titled, Open Wide Our Hearts, the Enduring Call to Love, a Pastoral Letter Against Racism that was published in the fall of 2018. Um, you can find it on the Conference of Catholic Bishops website. Individual bishops over the years have issued pastoral statements and instructions in their individual dioceses to address local issues. Second of all, examination of conscience. Examination of conscience is an exercise we Catholics are used to with our religious upbringing. We examine our consciences before going to confession. We examine our conscience during the 40-day period of Lent before the celebration of Easter. In between, we examine our conscience when we say our night prayers before bed. Examining our conscience on this topic, uh, we might give thought to Things we have overheard in our upbringing and in instances may have been taught by parents, relatives, neighbors, co-workers, friends about the merits and demerits of different peoples. A lot of this is framed sometimes in jokes where people laugh and smile, but they are truly offensive, many of them. In all of this, how have I knowingly or unknowingly or unconsciously made this information part of my worldview and how I approach people. A third one, ask yourself, is diversity apparent in my circle of friends? Uh, who do I hang around with? Are they all white or all representative of just my background? How can I include a variety of people and those I associate with or study with, recreate with. Institutions where I'm involved, can I challenge them to include people of other backgrounds? 
can I help my friends and relatives process their feelings in the midst of news and commentary about vulnerable populations and law enforcement, the vagaries of poverty and marginalization, which ring so loud, loud, loudly in our society. Fourthly, I recommend uh, people to choose here and there a Sunday to worship in a Catholic church of another ethnic group to get a sense of the beauty of another culture and their sense of God. Or you can join up with a meal program or a soup kitchen attached to a city parish along with a friend or two. To capture the spirit of charity and service the church provides for the homeless, the street poor. Parishes, parishes are always looking for um, volunteers. And then uh, another recommendation I threw out. Do I have it within me to speak up on behalf of anyone, be they white, black, brown, native, Asian, whom I witness being sidelined or mistreated in any way? Or do I clam up and remain silent and therefore become complicit in the sin that is being committed before my eyes? Um, are we making sure by our words and actions that we don't tolerate anything that we would not want done to ourselves? As Christians, can we see ourselves intellectually and emotionally in solidarity with peoples of whatever race or background who, to no fault of their own most often, have not been able to succeed in American life? The Gospels call us to have a special neighborly regard for the marginalized, uh, victims of race or ethnic bias, uh, brutality and deprivation. And we who have enjoyed the basics and some of us who have enjoyed even more of the benefits of life are enjoying to give to the less fortunate here and at other places in the world. Notions of opportunity and advantage are, are deeply in, ingrained in the American psyche. Most people take this for granted. And too many aspects of this psyche uh, from a Christian standpoint uh, are sinful, uh, for which we, we pray, Lord have mercy and what we have done and what we have failed to do. The prevailing culture influences us to believe that we are somehow more deserving than anyone else without regard for anyone left behind. Uh, America's self-interested individualism, valued as among the highest of virtues in this democracy, will keep us from necessary solutions to our national problem. The CBS 60 Minutes famous journalist, Mike Wallace, he once sat down with the acclaimed African-American actor Morgan Freeman from the movies Glory about black troops in the Civil War and Driving Miss Daisy and some other films. Wallace asked Freeman what he thought America needs to do to end its problem with race. And Freeman responded by saying, stop talking about it. I will stop calling you a white man and I will ask you to stop calling me a black man. I think Freeman's comment offers pause for some reflection on what America has been and is up against. We are stymied by the visual of skin color that affects everything we are and do as Americans. A black child senses by the age of four, it is said, that he or she is inferior compared to a child of the same age who is white. A black young man knows by the age of 16 
that he has no value in the public estimation of American society. This works a diminishment of self-esteem. Where he proceeds in life from there is anyone's guess. A man of diminished moral acumen or one resolved to navigate the choppy waters of racial acceptance to succeed academically or in some avocation in order to make a contribution to himself, society, his eventual family, and so forth. Lastly, our Catholic bishops have said over and over that racism is evil because it attacks the inherent dignity of the human person created in the image and likeness of God. Uh, we add that racism is a form of atheism, the denial of God and God's willful and, and artistic rendition of his creation. Racism has no place in the Christian community in any form. This sickness, as others would call it, emerges in the actions and the inactions of individuals and is found embedded in our institutions and in public policies and private choices. Our Catholic faith calls us both to personal conversion and to transformation of our society, beginning with the little corners of the society that we live in, work in, have influence in, and worship in. So, thanks for listening. That's my start to the conversation. Awesome. Thank you so much, Bishop Perry. Um, mm -hmm. Again, if anyone has any questions, feel free to drop them in the chat at this time. Um, we can do a little bit of Q&A. The one thing that really stood out to me that you literally just ended with was that racism is a form of atheism, that it is a denial of God's existence, knowing um, that God resides in every person um, and it's up to us. Um, earlier, you're also saying that we need to be in solidarity with one another to stand up when something is happening to another that we would not want happen to us. Um, and I think so much Correct. of like so many of us do fall into that clamming up that we're afraid to speak out um, when we know in our heart that we need to, that this is not right. Um, so I appreciated that, um, that comment. Thank you. Wait, do I have to do it like in the thing or can I just ask? You can just ask, that's fine. Okay, cool. Yep. I didn't really want to type it. Um, so I guess like right after like the George Floyd um, murder, like I was waiting for a statement like from my home church about the thing. Um, and like their first comment on it was like a picture and they were like blessing the police force. And then I just like, I was super like upset by that. Um, and I guess like my question then, and like the same that I have now is, is the church pro-life or the anti-abortion? Cause I think the Catholic church like actively and loudly advocates for an end to abortion. And like they post links about how to do this and they have speakers and then um, things like the March for Life that they encourage like parishioners to go to, but I don't see like that same energy put towards a movement like Black Lives Matter. And I think being pro-Black life is not a political statement. So I just don't, I guess my question is like, what's the difference? I don't know who can answer that. I don't know, but yeah, I guess that's my question. Yeah, it's a very good question. Thank you very much. In um, the uh, American Bishop's most recent pastoral letter, 
um, that came out in 2018, they underscored that, that point that you just bring up, that racism is a life issue. Um, if we respect other forms of life that seems to be in danger, whether it's in the womb or elderly or in between, why can't we make the transference to the dignity and the wholesomeness of life in between for anyone, be they black, brown, white, you know, Asian, native, whatever the case. If, um, if I deny you life, liberty, freedom, respect, that's, that's probably one of the superior life issues before us. So we would prefer that Catholic Christians would somehow see something of a seamless garment that pro-life is not just abortion, as serious as that, it's a respect for life and a respect for everyone from the womb to the day they leave this earth and meet the Lord. Yeah, your point is well taken. Thank you. Oh, sorry. That's okay. Yeah, thank you. Um, and this is not necessarily about race, but I guess more generally about like the haves and have-nots. And I know that Jesus said pretty much that there's always going to be the poor, you know? Mm-hmm. But I think you can try to distinguish like biological poor versus like social poor. You know how you said like the basics, to, you know, most, most of us are at least looking at more than that. But um, do you think, you know, we'll be, we're able to live in a like, society now or we don't need to have the biological poor and everyone can have the basics, you know? And even though there's still like, so the social poor, at least everyone is taking care of in the most basic way. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Do you think that's yeah. possible? I consider myself growing up poor, but I never knew I was poor. <laughs> Certainly when I, if I compare myself in my childhood with, with other people, then I say, oh my God, they certainly have far, far more than I ever had. That's one idea of poverty. Uh, another idea of poverty is that you can be poor, but you get to at the same time be the richest person in terms of your humanity and your virtue and who you are as a person. When Jesus said, we will always have the poor with you, he, he was not saying that in the sense that God will make sure that you're going to, there's going to be poor people around. There are poor people around because we make it so. Uh, we, we condemn people to live in situations that crush, crushes their human dignity. That is unjust and that is anti-gospel, is also anti-Christian. So poor people are around to test, quote-unquote, the rich, to do something about it. Uh, if a person has much of what life has to offer, I believe there are they are obliged to give half of it away to someone who doesn't have. That's what I preach. You're not allowed to keep it for yourself. You have it for a purpose, and that is to improve the face of the earth as God would want it. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I, I think it's kind of a challenge. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah, I yeah. wish, I wish mm-hmm. more people felt that way too, you know? that uh, mm-hmm. Or even like, you know, I guess an example, um, Chadwick Boseman recently passed away, I think, um, colon cancer. And he's, you know, obviously played Jackie Robinson, Perry Marshall, and then Black Panther. And I think one of the quotes in that movie was like, um, if only people could treat each other like one tribe, you know? 
I think we all be better mm-hmm. by it. So I think so too. You know. Thank you. Sure. Sure. Thank you. We did get a question um, in the chat. So this person wants to know, says, there are some in the political realm who dismiss unconscious bias as akin to ghost hunting rather than focusing on tangible, visible acts of racism. You mentioned that in our examination of conscience, we ought to be more aware of the unconscious movements uh, or motivations, excuse me, that may be active in our lives and actions. So how pervasive do you think unconscious bias is in our society? I think it varies. Uh, it depends on your background. Who are the people who your parents or grandparents or aunts and uncles, what were their experiences of life? How were they blessed by people or harmed by people? People tend to uh, create their categories and their judgments of people by things that, that happen to them. And uh, sometimes we end up with some mistaken notions about people by reason of what happens to us. Um, you know, if, if, if someone is harmed by a black person, then we tend to believe that all black people are criminal. Uh, if we see an uh, Irish person who is a drunkard every day of the week, we tend to think that all Irish people drink too much you know, or another group of people is, is lazy or whatever. We make broad sweeps about people by things that we see and feel and things that happen to us. And by the people who are in charge with our formative env- environment, the kitchen talk, so to speak. What is overheard by relatives and family members talking about people in the kitchen where most talk is done? Is it positive? Is it dignified or is it denunciatory? Those kind of things tend to make an, a permanent impression on the gray matter up here. And it can cause a person to perceive the same kinds of bias and prejudices that have been preached in the kitchen. The kitchen sometimes is a more influential environment than churches. <laughs> That's a very good point. Um, so another question is, what um, signs of hope do you see in kind of our big C church um, or even in our city in terms of this fight against um, racial injustice in our world? I was most impressed by the diversity of people who were in the peaceful protests, and even some of the violent protests for that matter. Uh, we've never seen that before. Uh, that tells a lot of people that this current generation of millennials have caught the message. They have a grasp and a, a fundamental understanding of human rights and human dignity that perhaps maybe their parents and grandparents did, didn't have. Uh, we never saw that mixture before. I mean, there, Indian, you name it, we're holding a Black Lives Matter placards. <laughs> uh, people were surprised at that. And especially the supremacists were surprised. Were surprised at that. So in that sense, I'm very confident about young people and young adults today who can pick up the baton and carry it forward to do some things that perhaps this generation has been unable to do or unwilling to do. I guess I have a comment and just another question. I guess my comment would just be like, I feel like a lot of the times we look at 
racism through like this good or bad bias that like if you're a good person you can't be racist or if you're a bad person that makes you racist which I think to a certain extent that holds true but I think you have to like I don't think I'm overtly racist to people of color but I think I benefit from a racist system and I think that's also important to note back to like the whole point about like unconscious bias I think that you also have to look about how it manifests itself in your everyday life um and then I guess my question would be like back to your statement about um how we can't make um change from like we personally can't make change in the government or in the policies or the laws or institutions and I bring up abortion again because I in my experience like I've only ever heard of pro-life in relation to abortion. Um, so like, why does the Catholic Church, I guess, feel that they can make changes about um, abortion and how that like works in society, whether it's uh, against the law or it's you're allowed to do it. So why does the Catholic Church feel that they can do that, but not make any kind of reforms? I guess if that makes sense in regards to racism and racist policies. I think it has to do with um, selectivity, what issues we want to tackle and which ones we don't. Uh, when you use the term racism, I think it rankles people. Uh, people take it personally because they think when the term is used that somehow they're being accused of something. I myself, I'm never quick to call a person a racist. Most instances, I would rather say a person is ignorant, is not understanding what they are or who they are, what they're saying or what they're doing. Then some people are outright evil insofar as they think about and do things to other people. Uh, if you call someone a racist, you have to be very, very sure about what you're saying. Um, that implies an individual who denounces the human dignity of another individual and would do most anything to destroy that individual with words, actions, systems, gestures, all kinds of behavior. Most people proceed in life not so much by their courage, but their fears. At, at the heart of a lot of this stuff going on in our society today is fear. Uh, we fear shortages. We fear shortages of jobs. We fear shortages of opportunity. We fear the lessened value of the property that we have if a certain individual moves next door to us. <laughs> um, that is the culprit, emotion, I think. So when it comes to championing issues, abortion or racism, uh, you find there are Catholics who will champion abortion, but they don't want anything to do with the topic of racism because it rankles people to their bones. Maybe because it's the ultimate evil, or one of the ultimate evils. I'm not sure. Okay, we have a few more questions that just came in in the chat. Um, the first one is, to what extent do you think we ought to accept that racism will always be around because of original sin, as opposed to not being complacent and still striving for justice? So where is the balance between earthly justice 
and hoping in heaven. Will racism always be around? I suppose the realism in me tells me that it will always be around. We've always seen it on planet Earth. Um, in another time, it was um, Adolf Hitler against the Jews. In another time, it was Palestinians against the Jews. Uh, there have been the wars in the Balkans uh, between people of Eastern European descent who hated each other's guts, but somehow they were uh, clammed up or kept at bay by communism. And as soon as communism fell, everybody came out of their closets fighting again. You know, uh, human history has always displayed one group oppressing another or feeling that another has that which I want myself or they don't have a right to. So you pounce on them, you try to destroy them. Um, it's a competition, it's a, it's a sinister kind of competition. Christianity has an antidote to all of that and not everybody appreciates. And that is this unique neighborly regard and equality that the gospel left to us by Jesus gives us. We like to see that sown more adequately within our social fabric of this American society. But realism also tells us that um, it will continue to be a struggle. We hope not to the magnitude that it is today. Uh, civil rights of the 1960s certainly could not be a possibility back in the 20s and 30s and 40s, 50s. So we seemed like we were making some progress once we got to civil rights, but civil rights is not enough. Attitudinal change, conversion of heart has to be added to it. And it seems like it's not there quite yet. We thought it was in the making, but every so often when things seem like they're echoing the kingdom of heaven, some ugly person comes forward with ugly behavior, ugly actions, as we've seen in recent days. And it um, seems like we're starting all over. So we Christians have to keep at it. Um, we have to keep dismantling it as much as possible in hopes that we can succeed even more. But this generation, the one following, the one following after that, Thank you, Bishop Perry. I think we have time for one more question. Um, you spoke of the power of engaging in service, such as soup kitchens, street ministry, etc., as a way of overhauling our own potentially harmful thoughts towards other people. Could you speak a little bit more to how service of this kind can transform our ways of thinking about and encountering others? It's a kind of education. You, call it, you might call it a, a self-education. Um, I can begin to dismantle my own hesitant thoughts about people if I can get in the crowd with these people whom I'm hesitant about and begin to appreciate them for being human beings or really feeling and thinking and doing exactly as I do. We all cry, we all bleed, we all have fears, we're, we all get scared, but we all respond to goodness. We all can respond to Christian service. And that's a kind of an ameliorating action on our part. If I can get next to people who are judged to be so awful, I'm forced to change my mind about them. 
and I see that they're really none too different than I am. But until I'm able to do that or want to do it, I will always um, look askance or be influenced by some of the things that were said in the kitchen about these people. Sure. Well, thank you so much, Bishop Perry, for your words tonight, for being with us. Um, really to just kickstart a conversation that we can continue talking mm -hmm. about this, um, that we can continue engaging, you know, participating in some of those small acts that you suggested um, during your talk of ways that we can just continue living on um, and supporting one another and recognizing Christ in one another. Okay, we can do like all virtual clapping <laughs> for Bishop Barry <laughs> since he can't hear us all. Um, but Thank we do you. appreciate appreciate you being with us tonight. You're welcome. My honor. Good yeah. being with you. Thank you, Bishop.